I made a horrifying discovery not too long ago. It was told to me, and I was shocked and uh, surprised. It was like some kind of medical diagnosis that I had no control over because, indeed, I had no control over it. I was a millennial. I mean, never mind the fact that I grew up all around Gen X culture. I remember a world before the Internet. No, didn't matter. I'm a millennial. I have nothing in common with what people make fun of millennials for, but I'm a millennial. And I guess I'm making a millennial podcast. I guess many of you guys are millennials. How do you vote? Why do you do it? What candidate do do you support? And do you have something in common with your fellow millennial? We're going to talk about all of that in this episode. It's a great one. So go ahead and stay tuned for it. But first... A little reminder, you can support this show by heading on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Again, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. With the uh, $3 level, you get a bonus podcast on Monday, bonus podcast on Friday, no matter where I am in the world. And folks, I'm going to be some places. Go ahead and check that out right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Four episodes a week if you're at that level. That's a lot of content. All right, never talking about how we support the show. Let's go ahead and do the damn thing. My guest today is Stella Rouse. She is an associate professor at the uh, the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. She is also the director at the Center for Democracy and Citizen Engagement. Welcome to the show, Stella. Happy to be here. Thank you. So we're going to talk about millennials, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, one of those fascinating just even words in culture it feels like these days it means so much to so many but specifically we're going to focus on where they fit into american politics so if you were this is something that i've even gotten into arguments about how are we officially classifying who a millennial is from the very beginning here Yes, I think part of the uh, debate and potentially arguments that you've been involved with has to do with the fact that there's no real one entity that defines the generation. Um, You would think that the government might be in that business, but they're not. The only generation the government has ever defined are baby boomers. Um, So generations are left to be defined by generational scholars, pundits, and even the news media. And eventually we end up settling on around a range of years that defines a, a generation. So for millennials, really, it's from uh, the early 1980s to the late 1990s. Specifically in my book, I talk about millennials uh, starting in 1980 and ending in 1997. The Pew Research Center has uh, done this as well, and they've determined they actually had that range last year, and this year they revised it to be 1980 to 1996. (laughs) So as we can see, there's always kind of a debate and fluctuation about when generations begin and end. Another way to look at millennials, though, in a less sort of numerical way is to say that it's that generation whose formative years occurred around the turn of the century, which is why they're called millennials. 
And we also discussed this in the book about what things that occurred around the change turn of the century affected the millennial generation persona. And that's also how we define it. You know, I, I've always found that a very weird definition uh, uh, in in some ways colored because as somebody born in 1983, I randomly found out in my early 30s uh, that I was I fell into the millennial definition, <laughs> which was something that I, I, I had not uh, uh, grown up uh, with the idea of. But I, I always kind of felt that when I was growing up, our, you know, my people who are around my age in their mid thirties had a lot more in common with people that were classified as kind of generation X. Uh, uh, but we had AIM, right? Like, like we had, we had screen names and away messages. And, and meanwhile, there is an entire generation that grew up post internet that I do feel like, you know, millennials encompasses both. And yet that to me is way more of a striking a societal kind of difference. Yeah, that's a really good point. So we have this kind of broad um, generational definition that usually runs about 20 years, give or take. But there are a lot of intergenerational differences that oftentimes get masked by creating this kind of broad generalization of a generation. And you just hit upon that, that oftentimes um, younger millennials um, have a lot more in in common with Generation Z, the next generation, and older millennials have more in common with Gen X. So this speaks to kind of the arbitrary nature of defining generations. But I I completely concede to the fact that there are a lot of intergenerational differences, and it depends on where in that time frame you were born and and how things affected you and when you grew up. So, And a lot of times those get masked over when we talk about these broad generalizations um, and it's definitely kind of a, a fault of, of people who study generations that we don't spend more time kind of de- uh, defining things within a generation that, that certainly exists. Broad generalizations, maybe not great for clarity, but fantastic for scholarly <laughs> research and argument. And that's what we're going to get into <laughs> now. So uh, millennials, uh, uh, how would you describe political engagement and participation for millennials, which I guess at the time of this recording would uh, range from people from, what, 39 to in their mid-20s? Uh, twenty, Yeah, so 23-ish would be kind of the youngest, 22, 23-ish, the younger millennials. So right out of college. So people that are either about to, right. that, that are staring down 40 or just coming out of college. Yep, yep, that's about right. Well, I would say that uh, prior to this last midterm election in 2018, I would describe their engagement as being relatively low if we measure it by kind of conventional measures of engagement, which really is we're talking about voting. And that's how oftentimes the media and others um, define whether a generation or people are or a group of people are politically engaged. Um, But if we're just looking at voting, the 2018 midterm election really uh, stunned a lot of people in terms of the turnout for the millennial generation. They turned out in higher numbers uh, than, you know, that age group has turned out uh, over the last 75 years. So that's really interesting. And I'm sure we'll talk about that when we talk about what that might mean for the 2020 election. But um, what what we argue in the book, my, my co-author and I, is that we sort of fail to uh, really grasp uh, millennial engagement if we just look at voting because millennials are engaged in, in a whole uh, uh, other ways that does not involve conventional measures of engagement. And what I mean by that is that they're not that much engaged in voting, but and they're also not engaged in, you know, campaign donations and uh, writing letters to their 
elected representatives, but where they are engaged is um, engaged with local governance. They're engaged with protests, with marches, and things like that that are seen as less conventional measures of engagement. And really, when we measure those things across the board with millennials and non-millennials, the only difference that we see is if we categorize whether you voted or not in the last uh, in the last presidential election, we see a tremendous difference between millennials and non-millennials. But in these other ways of engagement, we don't see uh, that much of uh, of a difference. And by the way, I should have uh, put this in the intro, but but the book you're referencing is the Poli- uh, the politics of millennials, political beliefs, and policy preferences of America's most diverse generation. So if you are interested in this conversation, then please go ahead and get Stella's book. Uh, now, the the you, you mentioned 2018. I think when some people listen to this, they might think, okay, well, the first time that I can remember in in recent presidential uh, race history that the youth vote was talked about as this big, gigantic moving element would be 2008 and Obama. Uh, But I guess at that point, only half of the millennial cohort is able to vote, right? Right. And when we talk about youth voting and comparing um, sort of different generations at, at a similar point in time, uh, 2008 was definitely uh, a high point for that age group. Usually uh, we tend to break that down like 18 to 29 year olds. And um, it encompasses oftentimes a large part of a young generation, but also uh, perhaps the next generation as well. But among 18 to 29 year olds, uh, 2008 was definitely a high point um, for them coming out to vote. That fell off a bit in, um, in, 20, uh, in 2012. Um, and then it fell off even more in 2016. Um, but again, it jumped in 2018, which is a real surprise because midterm elections generally do not bring out young people to vote. They vote at, you know, obviously it doesn't bring out the large majority of the population to vote. That's usually in presidential elections, but even lower numbers for young people. But millennials really did turn out almost at a 40 percent rate um, in the 2018 elections, which is really interesting. There is a lot of conversation that, you know, specifically Donald Trump as a candidate for uh, whatever element that he has excited uh, that had him uh, that allowed him to win in 2016 has almost and and even on the most uh, aggressive sides have have said that this is a generational change, that that you have driven uh, a, a large part of this millennial cohort to the Democratic Party, possibly for for their lives, because Donald Trump is so unpopular how much credence do you pay to an idea like that? A lot. I think there's really a battle going on in, in our society and in the electorate. Um, there's an element led by Donald Trump that is um, pushing the politics of what's called the politics of restoration. Um, Ron Brownstein from the Atlantic uh, you know, coined that term. Uh, versus the, the the politics of diversity, right, um, and, and the politics of moving forward and uh, – you know, which one of those is going to kind of win out is 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 still up in the air um, and will be de- determined, I think, a lot by whether Trump does get reelected in 2020. But there's no doubt that he's not very popular with millennials, particularly um, millennial minorities, African-American and Latino young people uh, have a very, very low rating of of Donald Trump. Um, and they really didn't turn out in 2016 because Bernie Sanders was really their candidate. <laughs> somebody who appealed tremendously to the millennial generation. And when he didn't get the nomination, um, a lot of them stayed home or, or voted for a third party candidate, Jill Stein or somebody else. And and so there's a definite, um, I think, disapproval among millennials for 
the presidency of Donald Trump and, and the policies that he's pushing. Yeah, you know, it is it is something very interesting because uh, if, if we are to take 2008 as where the older half of the millennial cohort was very excited for a candidate, I do think that part of that was the 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 successful dispatching of Hillary Clinton that that made Barack right. Obama somebody that was now of generational importance whether or not he won of course he did uh and then when Hillary Clinton gets run back in 2016 I think that there was definitely you know not only was there now this pocket of excitement for Bernie to say nothing of the fact that he ran a good primary uh, uh but also just say like oh okay I thought we were yeah but I guess we're not Exactly, exactly. And I think there was a feeling among millennials. Millennials feel very uh, strongly that, that the system is rigged to some extent and that they can't trust government institutions to sort of carry out, um, uh, you know, altruistic goals that would make society better. They believe in government overall, but the way that government institutions play out, they don't have a whole lot of faith in them. Um, and so I think they saw uh, in how Hillary Clinton obtain the nomination and how the superdelegates got behind her, even though there was so much excitement for, for Bernie Sanders, they felt that he was, um, uh, you know, sort of cheated out to some extent. And I think that that played a huge role along with the fact that here, you know, here's Clinton again, representing kind of the establishment coming back, uh, you know, as she did from 20, 2008 to, to 2016, um, really didn't sit well with millennials. And the other aspect of that is I don't think Clinton did a really good job of reaching out to to um, millennial Bernie supporters after she got the nomination. She almost assumed that they would switch over and vote for her and didn't do a good job of courting them. And so a lot of them did stay home in the 2016 election. As it turns out, they did not Pokemon go to the polls. But <laughs> we, uh, uh, we do have a lot of very big issues that not only played out in the 2018 midterms where we had booming millennial participation, but also are obviously big issues here in the 2020 race. So let's just start with issues in general that are, are specifically very, very sensitive for millennial voters. Well, I think you got to start with student loan debt. That's a huge issue for millennials there in our book. We, we show how millennials are not monolithic and they're not always liberal on every issue, despite sort of the perception that there is out there that millennials are very liberal. Um, but consistently across all millennial subgroups, student loan debt and wanting the government to do something about their student loan debt uh, across the board is consistently favored by millennials. So I think that's a huge issue uh, for millennials, uh, followed by, I think climate change is another issue that's very important to millennials. Um, uh, and immigration is also a, a really important issue to millennials. So those, those, I think I would name as the, as the top three issues that are salient right now, that there are things that are going on that, that millennials are really engaging behind. So student loan debt, I think many of our millennial listeners will understand very acutely why that might be something that they would go to support a candidate over. But the other two are interesting to me because climate change has been a a factor for a, a very long time and has kind of waxed and waned in, termed, uh, in terms of being a reliable way to get people to, to vote for a candidate. Is there a reason why it matters more to millennials or is this just a rising tide, pardon the pun, uh, with all voters and millennials are just very passionate about it? Yeah, I think I think I would say both to those things. I think it is a rising tide, but I think the um, 
the challenge that Donald Trump presents in terms of what he has done on the issue of climate change is also a very motivating factor. Um, you know, he, for all intents and purposes, denies that cli- that man-made climate change exists and has reversed policies that Obama had in place to try and regulate the fossil fuel industry to a tremendous amount, taking the United States out of the the climate, the inter, uh, international Paris climate change agreement uh, was was a huge deal for millennials at all. So I think there is a rising tide in, in terms of the threat of climate change that we've seen over the last few years or the drastic threat, along with uh, somebody that they see in office that is running counter to what should be done to address the issue of climate change. Now, it's really interesting because in our book, what we find is that that millennials see climate change as as a huge issue, but they don't always support government efforts to address climate change policies. And and we speculate that that has to do with the fact that they don't trust the government to, to sort of do what they should do to help address the climate change issues and that they have taken on doing a lot more individual or local level things to try and address uh, the climate change issue. So there's sort of this um, inconsistency with with seeing that as a major issue, but then not always supporting big government solutions to address the climate change issue. So they may be united on the idea that there is a major problem that needs to be addressed, but not necessarily there for the Green New Deal, just to throw something out there. Exactly. Not necessarily in line with how it should exactly be addressed by the government. Now, again, I think they certainly don't favor the things that Donald Trump has done because they run counter to to anything productive to try and help the environment. And I think that's that's a really motivating factor that that has come up over the last, you know, two and a half years. Immigration is another one that's very interesting to me because I would guess that immigration, which really was looked at more as a fringe issue pre-Donald Trump, uh, is something that is almost wholly inspired by the Trump win in 2016. Uh, Would would that be correct to say? I wouldn't wouldn't say that exactly. Um, I have an article that, again, my co-author and I, who I wrote the book with, uh, we started this work on, on millennials with an article that looked at whether immigration attitudes among millennials would change during the Great Recession, because the argument would be millennials are generally liberal about immigration policy, favor pro-immigration policies. Um, and we wanted to test, well, if if there's going to be a challenge to that pro-immigration attitude, it's going to be at the height of the Great Recession when this idea that immigrants may be you know, taking jobs away from millennials, where millennials would have to be competing with immigrants for jobs uh, because of the the weakness of the economy, that their attitudes would, would shift relative to immigration. And what we found is really that millennial attitudes toward immigration are really resilient, even at the height of the Great Recession, when they were taking the, the disproportionate hit for the economy, um, that they were very pro-immigration and very supportive. So I think they've always had that as an attitude. I think what has happened is that, you know, the heightened threat to immigrants has really put that that issue um, at the forefront more than ever. And um, I think that the 2016 election, um, in part, the the rise in participation in voting by millennials was driven by the anti-immigration rhetoric that they heard coming from the White House and from some congressional candidates. And so you define immigration here as just blanket all immigration, not necessarily just illegal or, you know, immigration, undocumented immigration. We've tested, uh, we've done surveys on both issues and on both issues, millennials tend to be very, very pro-immigration. For example, um, millennials support uh, 
having a National Dream Act, um, you know, allowing um, citizenship for, for children of undocumented immigrants, uh, allowing a path for citizenship to, to those who have who are here who are undocumented. They strongly, strongly oppose the child separation policy that the Trump administration is engaging in. They strongly oppose, uh, you know, immigration rates for those that are non-criminals. Um, so they're on both um, legal and undocumented uh, they're very pro pro immigration. Would you say with this kind of attitude, as millennials become a more potent voting force as they as they grow older, that this is more of a fruitful time for something like wholesale immigration reform uh, in the next twenty years? If that's the idea that you know this this group has. I hope so. I'm hopeful for that. And one of the reasons that I'm hopeful of that is that millennials uh, are the most diverse generation in American history. Now, Generation Z is likely to replace them in that fact um, because Generation Z is even more diverse than millennials. But at the current time, millennials are the most diverse adult generation. Um, many haven't grown up uh, around uh, diversity with with immigrants, with people uh, that look different than they do. Um, it's just a matter of life, right? Going to school and, and having a diverse environment in the classroom. And so I think there is this hope that that this generation and the next generation will be the ones to, to sort of see immigration in a different light. And that goes back to what I said earlier about the fight that's going on, right? The, the Make America Great slogan is this idea of restoring America to a time that was not as diverse um, as it is now. And so there's this fight about the direction of the country that I think millennials and Gen Z will have a lot to say about moving forward, particularly millennials, because they are the ones now at the age where they're entering into um, running for office, becoming the leaders, not only in government, but in businesses and in other social aspects of life. And, and so they're really the ones that are going to lead this charge if it's going to be led to have um, immigration reform. Now, obviously, all the issues that we talked about are going to play a role in the 2020 race. Is there any other element or trend that you see amongst millennials that we've missed that will play a role as we continue on with this particular race? Um, so I think the three issues that I mentioned are really at the height of, uh, uh, of what's important to, to millennials at the moment. I think the, the one that I, I don't want to ignore and that we haven't talked about is, is um, common sense gun control. Uh, I think there have been um, surveys and what we show in our book is that actually millennials are not that much different <laughs> from older non-millennials in terms of their attitudes about gun control. Uh, where we see differences is uh, uh, within millennials, right? So African-American and Latino millennials are much more in favor of gun control than our white millennials. Um, the interesting thing will be to see if that tide changes by 2020. We've seen some survey results recently that have shown millennials shifting uh, on attitudes toward gun control, given all the mass shootings that we have had. Uh, so we'll see how that issue plays out. Obviously, it's a much bigger issue for Generation Z because they are the ones that have really experienced. They really are the lockdown generation, even though millennials went uh, suffered through Columbine and, and some school shootings. It has not been at the level that Generation Z has experienced that. So I feel like that generation is really the one that might take the bull by the horns and, and really address the issue of, of gun control, as we saw with the Parkland students. But millennials will play a large role in that. As I said before, they're going to be the ones that will be um, 
uh, representing, be representatives in government, the next generation to do that. And so how that plays out um, in the 2020 may be a signal about moving forward and whether gun control will remain um, an important issue uh, within, you know, within Congress and, and whether the president does something about about that. One of the biggest issues of the race, including one with a, a very millennial favored candidate in Bernie Sanders, is health care, which you have not mentioned. What is the millennial attitude toward health care in general and then let's say Medicare for all in specific? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Obviously, millennials uh, very much favored the provision in Obamacare that allowed them to stay on their parents' insurance until 26 especially given the, the hit that they took with the Great Recession. But when we looked at attitudes toward healthcare and what, what millennials preferred, whether they wanted just a free market, uh, the free market to dictate healthcare policy or if they wanted the government involved in healthcare policy, the most common response was really a little of both. So they want the government to be involved to some extent so prices aren't out of control, so people aren't um, you know, knocked off insurance for pre-existing conditions. So kids can stay on their parents' insurance until until 26, things like that. But they don't. They have not in the past favored a total government-run um, healthcare system, which is really interesting. Again, because we talk about how liberal millennials are. Yeah. Uh, but they they are not liberal on all issues, and when it comes to healthcare, they're not necessarily completely in favor of the government taking over healthcare. That's fascinating. Uh, all right. So there is one. Well, I guess. Is there more than one? No, there's just one millennial candidate. I'm trying to think of how old Andrew there was Yang two. is. Um, Eric Swalwell was also a millennial, but he's dropped out. So Swalwell has dropped out. Wait, how old is Swalwell? Swalwell's yeah. in his what? I guess late thirties, right? He's in his thirties. Yeah, he's in his late thirties. Uh, but uh, Buddha Judge is probably the one that is doing, or is the one that is doing the best. Uh, of course, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, who's really come from out of nowhere in terms of mainstream national politics to become a contender in this race. How is he using the the millennial cohort, I guess, uh, to his advantage or, or just even people's preconceptions about millennials? Yeah, I think he's done a great job of um, pushing this generational change mantra, but in a way that is not just about telling all the other candidates that they're too old and out of touch, right? He's very careful not to do that when you watch him in interviews or on the debate stage, but he makes this argument that it's time for a new um, crop of leaders. And he, I think, has a lot of um, authenticity in that because not only is he a millennial and can say, look, it's time to, to sort of maybe um, pass the torch in some way, but, but here's what I bring to the table. Here's how accomplished I have all the accomplishments that I have, um, you know, done in my, you know, short life, even though I'm young, but I've served in the military. I'm a Rhodes Scholar. I'm a, a mayor of, of a city. Um, and I think these things bring credibility to to the idea of generational change and what he can bring to the table based on his experience. Is that an element of of millennial culture, if, if we are to define it, is that that, you know, why wait? I'm just going to do it now. Look at Silicon Valley. All the titans of our most potent financial industry are all millennials that that, that uh, became famous very quickly by just not waiting for a system and just doing that. Is, is that something that that in general kind of excites millennial voters? 
I think there is an element of that. I think um, we have seen that even in the past uh, a couple of election cycles where we've seen um, millennials really jump into into politics and run for office. Um, particularly in 2018, we saw a, a, a lot of millennials um, basically come in and, and you know, uh, run for office, uh, challenge uh, established incumbents. Um, obviously, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is kind of the example of that or the symbol of that, but she was not, by far, not the only one. Uh, so there was a huge movement just in the political realm where millennials in the past had been, you know, we don't want anything to do with running for office. They really did take the bull by the horns in 2018. And I think we're seeing more of a momentum of that, given this attitude of like, it's, it's time for us to kind of take over. We've seen what's gone on with older generations leading government, leading industries, and, and, and it's kind of our time. And I do see that as being a, an element that that Buttigieg represents really well, um, given somebody who's come out of nowhere. I mean, why would somebody think that, you know, uh, the mayor of South Bend could could think he could run for president? And he's done a really good job of making the case of why he can and why he should. Yeah. You know, and and uh, from a state that isn't necessarily considered a battleground, uh, you know, the, uh, I think it was Wayne Messam of Miramar, Florida, ran. He might still be running, but uh, Lord knows if anybody can tell. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, and 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 I think that the difference there, although Wayne Messam is an African American, uh, you know, there is an element of uh, that kind of sells the the millennial, the can-do millennial, being without much fanfare, a major threat to the to take the White House, who's also gay, right? Like, is is that something that also is kind of a millennial dog whistle? That like, hey, look, this is just happening because it should happen, and it's not going to be the centerpiece of the campaign. It's just going to be what it is. Absolutely. I think you raise a great point. I think the issue of, of being gay, of, uh, of gay marriage for millennials, I mean, millennials are really liberal when it comes to that, right? Marijuana and gay marriage are two social issues where they are, where they are super liberal. And it was because I think they grew up at a time where that wasn't that big of a deal, right? It's almost second thought now to think about um, somebody being gay and, and being in a, in, in a gay marriage, being married, you know, that they don't, they don't see that as a, a huge deal. Right. And I think Buttigieg has done a good job of utilizing that to show issues that are important and what matters to him and how, you know, the government, if it wasn't for, he always says this, uh, in interviews that if it wasn't for the vote of one Supreme court justice, he wouldn't have been able to get married. Yeah. Right. And so he, he raises that in proper context, but is not, ever really putting it out there that he's the gay candidate. No. Um, and I think that's a reflection of how millennials view that issue. It's not, you know, at the forefront of, of, of thoughts about differentiating people about whether they're gay or straight. Um, it's something that is pretty common to them because of when they grew up. Aside from Mayor Pete, who are millennials excited about? Because although he has certainly out punched his weight class, he is not among the top three front runners. Yeah, I think um, so Elizabeth Warren is somebody that millennials have really, you know, in, in some of the polling that I have seen, um, some of her uh, rise in the polls has come at the expense of Bernie <laughs> and his support for millennials is not as great as it was in, in, 20, um, in 2016 because that was basically the only option that they had. But I think millennials, particularly educated millennials, see Elizabeth Warren as really um, someone who is going to fight for the issues that, that they care about. Um, obviously, 
the fact that she kind of has a plan for everything really um, uh, attracts millennials and how she's put forward plans for student loan um, relief, for climate change, for, again, for the for immigration, for issues that they care about. Um, they see her as a real viable candidate. Now, she's not the only one. I think we'll see how it plays out as the field kind of condenses somewhat. Um, but, uh, you know, she she is one that that really we're keeping an eye on on um, whether millennials are going to kind of coalesce behind her. It, it was, and of course, Bernie still has quite a bit of support, but just not to the extent among millennials, just not to the extent that he did in 2016, given the diversity of the field. Is there a gender split there? Because I, I've I've gotten the sense anecdotally amongst my audience that there was or even personally that for as much as many people were very excited for Bernie against Hillary in the primaries, the way that everything wound up playing out with there being this uh, uh, fractious sort of Bernie staying in, there's a Bernie bro thing, maybe this is about people not wanting to accept a female candidate, and then obviously Hillary loses and there's finger pointing to go around for the you know intervening, we're still in the middle of it, four years. Uh, uh, that that kind of soured uh, female voters, or at least younger female voters that I talked to on Bernie who were otherwise there posting to the dank meme stash Facebook uh, back in 2015. Yeah, I think there is a gender component um, uh, to that. Uh, you know, millennials aren't immune to some of the same issues related to misogyny and, and um, gender discrimination. Uh, again, we, we tend to think of them as being ultra liberal and they are more liberal than other generations at similar points in age and they're continuing to stay liberal where other generations have become more conservative as much as we've been able to track it now, now that we have older millennials in their late thirties. Um, but that still doesn't immune them from, um, you know, some of the same issues that affect other generations. And I think there, there certainly was a gender component in 2016. And we're seeing that still um, in the presidential uh, contest now um, uh, for the Democrats in terms of, of a gender component and, and who millennials get behind, depending on, on what gender they are. Biden obviously is not somebody that we have mentioned, yet he is currently the front runner. If he were to stay the front runner, do you see any elements of either him or his campaign thus far that would become a stay home liability for millennial voters? Or is is Donald Trump just a unique figure that that millennial uh, uh, voters who don't like him would vote for a ham sandwich uh, against a second Trump administration? I think the latter is the is is what I would presume would be the bigger uh, issue at play. Um, I think that Biden would, you know, the issues that afflicted Biden at the very beginning having to do with some of the Me Too movement stuff and how, you know, obviously he's never been accused of, you know, sexual assault or harassment per se, but kind of, you know, um, invading people's personal space, petting and sniffing, space. and yeah, the, yeah. The, the stuff stuff that uh, uh, again, it, it's I think much in the same way that Mayor Pete running as a gay candidate, but not making that the centerpiece of what he's doing. There is another kind of millennial dog whistle in old man who just wants to touch you all the time. That yes, was really cool of, back in the day right. and is not cool at all right now. 
Right. But as we've seen, that's kind of died off as we've gotten into the contest a little bit more. I don't think that has sustained um, no. like it did when he first entered, entered, um, you know, entered as a nominee. Uh, unless something else comes up, I don't see that as being a huge issue. And I think millennials are not going to hold that against him, particularly when you compare it to the accusations of the person in the White House in terms of those issues. I think there's really no comparison. So I would predict and of course, if I, you know, was in the prediction game and, and did this, uh, you know, on 100 percent accuracy, I'd probably be in a different business. But I would predict that that millennials are going to be driven by um, their opposition to Trump. Now, it's always dangerous to try and drive any group to the polls based on opposition. You want to yeah. give groups something to vote for and not something to vote against. So I think at some point, if Biden stays the front runner and he gets the nomination, he would do well to address issues that are important to millennials, or he does, um, you know, uh, may suffer the, the, some of the same fate as Hillary Clinton, um, where millennials will, will stay home or potentially vote for a third party candidate if, if one comes up. So I think Biden would do well if he does get the nomination to, to sort of address the issues that are important to millennials and give them something to vote for instead of counting on them to come out to the polls to vote against Donald Trump. Although Hillary was just uniquely qualified to to i think inspire people to not vote <laughs> to, yeah. to, to put it bluntly i mean even again just to go back because she was the villain in 2008 and this is like the first right. the first major big political moment in so many millennials lives that she was she was the bad guy right and and then she was graciously she was, brought she... into the to the fold uh but but i don't think that there was really ever any love lost no, no, I totally agree. Um, she had a lot of baggage and, and as many millennials and just even people who aren't millennials saw it as a choice between two two really bad choices, right? The, the lesser of the two evils. And for some, um, Trump being a, a, a neophyte in terms of politics, even though, you know, he's been out in the in the public sphere for, for decades, um, looked at the better looked as a better alternative than, you know, Hillary Clinton, who had been in politics for decades. Right. And, yeah. and I think that, you know, that dynamic um, will not be there in the, in the 2020 election, no matter who the Democrats um, end up. up nominating. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's anyone who's in the contest now that, that brings the baggage that Hillary Clinton brought, even Joe Biden, who's been in government forever, just doesn't bring that baggage along. Um, he, he doesn't have the sort of um, really, strong opposition that that the Clintons and Hillary Clinton had. And, and, you know, to some extent that was unfair because she incurred some of the baggage of her husband. Right. Yeah. Um, but it was what it was. And, and I don't think there's a candidate on the Democratic side that, that will have as big of an issue with that in 2020. Yeah. I mean, for, for better or worse, the, the co-president's label from 1992 certainly endured uh, and, and wound up yep. uh, wound up maybe biting her in the butt in 2016. One yes. last Biden question yep. here. Uh, and then we can get out of here. The uh, the slurring and some of the Biden, I think, has as a candidate, uh, even in these early days of the race, has kind of optically seemed older than candidates that are by age his contemporaries in Warren and Trump and Bernie. Is that something that millennials, in your opinion, look at in a certain way or, or, or would react harsher to or be more judging on? I think, yes. I think the, you know, whenever you see that from Biden, 
uh, Pete Buttigieg's message really resonates more, right, with millennials. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see if the other Democratic candidates actually make that a huge issue in their campaigns. Right. Or on the debate stage and really take Biden to task for that or if they feel like that's, um, you know, an area that they do not want to go down. Uh, I mean, I think this is really interesting, especially for somebody like Buttigieg, who can use those examples and say, see, this is why we need a younger person running. And he hasn't that I've seen gone there. Um, but it's concerning. And I think it's concerning uh, for the Democratic Party, not only uh, in terms of how, who they might, you know, what uh, voters they might lose from that. But, um, you know, how that's going to play out with a younger generation who they want to keep motivated uh, from 2018 and and, you know, at least match or, or outdo what uh, the turnout was in 2018 among that generation. And I think Democrats realize that they need millennials uh, to come out to vote. And um, it can certainly if, if Biden continues, uh, you know, with these gaps that that really make him look older, perhaps than you know, he actually is or not mentally there that obviously Donald Trump is going to totally seize upon that um, and that that could really affect. Yeah. I mean, uh, if it, if it is, if it is not of a Democrat to win, <laughs> if it is not made an issue in the primaries. And, and I do right. think that there are probably the way that the vectors line up, uh, you know, you probably if you're Warren or or Bernie, you don't want to start throwing rocks on who's old. Right. Uh, and, right. And, and Buttigieg has tried to dance around it because he thinks that the message is already kind of said as much as it's going to be said when he stands next to these folks. Uh, then right. it might not be said in the primaries. I mean, certainly by surrogates, but not by the candidates themselves. Donald Trump will have no, no right. qualms getting up in front of a gigantic rally and uh, you know doing his Biden impression. Absolutely not. And, and the question is for the Democratic Party and the DNC. And when you start seeing these endorsements, is that an issue then that, you know, the Democrats say, look, we can't take a, a, a wounded animal, which is what Biden would be if he continues to do this and put him up against Trump. We have to sort of put him down beforehand. Right. Um, to just stick with the analogy and, and back a different person that's not going to have those issues. So I think how that plays out moving forward over the next four to five months is going to be really, really interesting, um, because I think there is genuine concern uh, overall about how this makes Biden look and um, what then his chances would be against Trump, uh, you know, even though he, you know, he's still in all the national polls that they show and among all different groups, you know, he still wins over Trump. But I think that could become an issue moving forward if, if this continues. Yeah. I mean, and also those polls, I mean, you know, I guess if somebody's got to keep busy during the summer, but I don't know exactly. How <laughs> That's right. They... they don't know. You're right. And they're not very meaningful at this uh, point in time. Um, obviously, state polling is a little bit more uh, sort of has more to say about it than these national yeah, I mean, polls. I, I guess still it, too early to tell. Yeah. All, all data is data and you can certainly match it against 2018 and, and see, you know, something. Although, I don't know. I, I do think that there is something different when Trump's on when Trump's on the ticket. Uh, uh, it is it is a different game, even if there are Trump friendly yes. candidates like there were in 2018. OK, well, uh, Estella Rouse, she has been our amazing guest here, associate professor for the Department of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland and this uh, director of the Center for Democracy and Citizen Engagement. Please, everybody, if you like this. Go get much, much, much more of it in the politics of millennials, political beliefs, and policy preferences of America's most diverse generation. Stella, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Justin. Appreciate it. Really enjoyed the conversation.
Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>